GPPR listeners, my name is Kira Brown, and I'm a first-year MPP student here at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown. I'm coming to you today with a wonderful guest on our podcast, a professor from our very own university, Pamela Hurd. Her research focuses on inequality and how it intersects with health, aging, and policy. She is also an expert in survey research and biodemographic methods. She is currently one of the principal investigators for the General Social Survey, investigator with the Wisconsin Longitudinal Survey, chair of the NIH Data Advisory Board for the National Study of Adolescent Health, as well as a member for the Population Association of America. She has received grant awards for her work from the National Institutes of Health, National Institutes on Aging, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and APPR. As for relevance to our podcast topics today, Pamela Hurd also does research on administrative burdens or the bureaucratic obstacles that people encounter when trying to access government benefits, services, and rights. She's especially interested in how this burden is both shaped by and further enforces inequality. Therefore, she's a perfect guest for today's discussion on the topic of COVID-19 and administrative burdens and how both play roles in the deepening wealth divide and overall inequality across the U.S. With the two-year anniversary of COVID-19 quickly approaching, it has become ever relevant the significant role public policy plays in handling of crises such as a pandemic. In one way or another, we have all realized the things that government is great for and also where controversy may arise. A central aspect of any public policy is its efficiency and effectiveness. Today, we are going to dive into the topic of policy efficiency and how exactly efficiency is achieved in public policy, as well as if the pandemic policies of the last two years have met the needs of the American people. Thank you so much for being here today, Professor. Um, Obviously, you have an excellent background in policy, which is why I'm excited to get your perspective on the pandemic as it relates to policy execution. So specifically with regard to administrative burdens, overall, how do you think we are doing, maybe start by defining what administrative burdens are for our listeners? Well, thanks for having me, Kira. Um, So administrative burdens are the kind of onerous Um, experiences that people have when they're trying to interact with any kind of government service, whether it be voting or access to social welfare benefits. You know, it's the sort of hurdles and hassles that you encounter when you're trying to access those benefits. Um, The pandemic has, I think, highlighted the degree to which uh, these burdens are a real problem in our uh, a real problem in terms of how the government um, has distributed uh, pandemic-related benefits. So, for example, um, the there was a huge expansion in unemployment insurance, which was really important given the kind of massive unemployment loss we had, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but we really struggled to actually get those benefits out. So people experienced um, everything from, you know, um, extended wait times for benefits to um, actually just an inability to apply because they couldn't get uh, through on phone lines or access websites. Um, so, you know, a lot of people got kind of firsthand experience of uh, what it can be like to kind of navigate the unemployment insurance system, for example. Um, But there were other examples that worked 
better. So you mentioned the stimulus checks. Um, and that's a really good example of uh, how we can more readily and easily uh, distribute aid to people uh, effectively. You know, you didn't have to apply or most people didn't have to apply for the stimulus checks. Um, you just had it deposited in your bank account um, uh, after the passage of the act and the IRS kind of uh, figured out how to distribute them. So no application, sort of automatic distribution of benefits is sort of the ideal way. Uh, the ideal way. No, you're a big fan of uh, Social Security. And so I was curious, looking at it from that kind of perspective, did you see the CARES Act and like with the stimulus checks, for example, use a type of policy design that you'd seen before or any type of um, tools, I guess, that made it easier for people to apply and get those checks in their hands? Or were there issues that you saw with other programs that we've had in the past? Yeah, no, that's a, a, a good question. I mean, I think the, the lesson from the stimulus checks is that effectively benefits that people don't need to apply for, um, where kind of the government already knows that you're eligible and already knows um, what the benefit level should be. And it just gives you that benefit, right? It doesn't require you to go through an application process. That's that's sort of the ideal if you want to uh, reduce administrative burdens. And we have the capacity to do it in a lot of different programs. Um, so for example, if you are um, eligible for uh, the SNAP program for food stamps, you're probably eligible for Medicaid as well. And the government would have information in many states to know that. So there have been examples, for example, I'm sorry, there have been examples um, such as in Wisconsin where they actually just did automatic enrollment for people into the Medicaid program. Um, so yeah, in that way, the stimulus checks is sort of Automatic enrollment is one way to think about it. Does map on to other um, experiences that we've had with government that make um, that really reduce administrative burdens and make things really accessible for people who need them. Yeah, I think people were impressed with how it worked. Is definitely something that people look back on or like this was a decently effective program. I wonder if it'll continue. So I know it, uh, there was automatic enrollment for a lot of this stuff. Um, were there any demographics that you know that were not included in stimulus check rollout? I know yeah. So so this is both that. so both the stimulus checks, um, as well as the new expansion of the child tax credit, are good examples where most people got those benefits easily. Um, and without having to do much. Um, effectively, the burden embedded in the program was taken on by the government, right? The government took on the work of figuring out who was eligible and making sure that only eligible received benefits and all that sort of thing. Um, but there are unfortunately, yeah, um, uh, particularly low-income individuals who, because these benefits effectively were distributed through the tax system, Anyone who doesn't need to regu regularly file uh, taxes um, did not receive those benefits automatically and would have had to actually apply and get them. And that process did not know go incredibly well. And we still know, in fact, that there are people 
who did not get their stimulus checks. Um, and unfortunately, uh, they're the people who probably needed those stimulus checks the most. Um, mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with the child tax credit. It's the exact same issue. Um, so this is one of the consequences. Increasingly, actually, we distribute social welfare benefits through the tax system. That's become a kind of um, administrative mechanism uh, that Congress has employed, especially over the past 20 years. Um, and it works really well for some people and it works really poorly for other people. And the problem is that the people it works most poorly for are the people who actually need those benefits the most. And yeah, so that that is one problem for sure. Um, yeah, definitely uh, heard some discussion, especially with the design of how what type of distribution you want with if it's like a universal like most people apply for it in those times or should it be more means tested as people who really need it during because i know plenty of people who got stimulus checks that arguably probably didn't need the stimulus check so it's that argument too where it's how yeah. do you approach it politically as well yeah yeah i mean it is sort of so Generically, one of the policy design features that makes it uh, less likely that you'll end up with administrative burdens are more universal programs where you have fairly, fairly simple eligibility um, and uh, where most people are getting it uh, and the benefit levels are fairly straightforward. The thing I would say, though, is so while that is sort of generically true, um, it is also the case though that we have the means and we have been able to do it in programs to handle um means testing frankly especially income testing not asset testing but income testing and it basically it doesn't necessarily mean that just because a program is income tested that you're going to have high levels of burden and it doesn't mean that just because you don't have income testing there won't be burden um so for example the medicare program it's a universal program. Uh, it is, in fact, become increasingly more burdensome over time. So even though everyone age 65 and older is effectively eligible for Medicare, um, it has actually become an increasingly difficult program to navigate um, because there's been a, a kind of privatization of the program. More and more of the program is delivered via private health insurers. And without getting into the details of what that looks like, it's actually really complicated um, and it's really hard for people to navigate it. So anyway, my point just is that burden is certainly more likely in programs that are means tested and less likely in programs that are more universal, but it's, it's not quite as simple as you make a program universal and there won't be burden or you make a program means tested and there will be burden. There's a lot of variance actually. That's super interesting because I don't think many people probably think about that when putting together a successful piece of policy. So it's definitely good information to know moving forward. So obviously there were people who didn't get their stimulus checks, like you said. And so we also saw a huge, not spike in, but just how important essential workers were during the pandemic. And those service workers, those um, minimum wage workers, a lot of people who frankly don't usually get any type of political attention at all. And I was just wondering, do you think that the CARES Act did a good job at addressing the needs of those lower income service workers 
or in addressing the inequality that's been growing in the U.S. For those of you that may not know, the CARES Act included a variety of hope to individuals in the form of stimulus checks, increased unemployment benefits, paycheck protection program for small businesses, loans for large businesses, and more than $300 billion in aid to state and local governments. Unprecedented in size and scope, the legislation was the largest economic stimulus package in U.S. history, amounting to about 10% of total U.S. GDP. The bill is much larger than the $831 billion Stimulus Act passed in 2009 as part of the response to the Great Recession, to put it into perspective. Well, I'd say the record on that was sort of mixed. Um, the expansion of the child tax credit to pe- to much lower earners, basically, was hugely important for low-income populations, um, especially, you know, for children uh, living below the poverty line. The stimulus checks uh, were also hugely critical for those populations. Um, and the actually, there were other examples, both for food stamps and Medicaid. They made a lot of changes in those programs that made them administratively less complicated. And so... Fewer people were kicked off the Medicaid program because they screwed up the paperwork or forgot to call about something. Um, and same thing with SNAP. So all of those things, I think, were real successes. Um, unemployment insurance um, was a mixed bag. It was all of a sudden it was expanded to people who'd never been eligible for it. So and those are large. Those were largely low income workers. Um, but because it was implemented so poorly, many of those people who should have didn't get access to those benefits. So complicated. Um, and as we already talked about, right, the, the child tax credit and the stimulus payments, unfortunately, low-income people were also disproportionately more likely to have trouble actually navigating the systems to get their benefits. So I'd say it's a sort of mixed record. On the whole, lot be- a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it wasn't sort of a uniform success, largely because of administrative problems is really what I would argue it boils down to. Not because the money wasn't there, uh, not because there weren't some good policy choices generically, but because administratively, the programs were just not well-functioning. The other example actually are, you know, we're, we're really concerned. A lot of people are on the edge of getting evicted at this point. So we um, had you know, billions of dollars in funds to help people pay off this kind of rent debt that they'd accumulated throughout the pandemic. Um, But very small fractions of that money have actually been delivered. Um, As of a month ago, only 20% um, in total have been delivered. Well, meanwhile, we know tons of people are facing evictions, right? Um, So it's another example of where the intent was good. And it's wonderful that the money was there. But if you can't actually get it to people, it, it, it's sort of pointless. So where do you think with, say, the eviction moratorium, like where did that go wrong in its carry out? Because obviously it's well intended and like it was a huge problem still is frankly is because it didn't stop the money being charged to these people. It just exactly. put a pause when they had to pay it. So it's it was. What, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the problem basically was that most states didn't have existing administrative capacity to manage the funds. Um, and there were some initial, initially the way that the rules uh, functioned for it, states were really worried that they'd, if they, if, if 
there were mistakes in how they distributed the money that they'd be really penalized. Um, so the interaction between those two things just meant that states were really slow um, in terms of delivering it. It's also interesting, though, because there's real variance across states. So Texas actually um, has been much more effective than most states in delivering it. Mm. Um, they made a couple of policy choices, design choices. Um, and so Texas, uh, what we would think of as not a particularly liberal um, state when it comes to social policymaking actually did a pretty good job. Um, so that's the other thing that's sort of interesting about these burdens. I think there's a, a knee-jerk reaction that we think, oh, you know, states or places that are more liberal will have fewer of these burdens, um, where that's not always true. Um, so California, for example, their food stamp program has some of the lowest take up in the country, in part because it's just administered poorly. <laughs> um, so anyway, that, and, and yeah, so there was there also was real variance across states. Some states did do a better job at delivering rent aid. Massachusetts, Massachusetts did a better job as well. I think people have conceptions about the abilities of their state governments, especially depending on their political uh, majorities and such. So yeah. that is interesting to hear that Texas is doing a better job. So obviously, I think the pandemic highlighted a lot of places in our government that just frankly are not functioning in ways that are efficient or effective for most people who are able to take up these benefits. In regards to healthcare, do you think that the CARES Act, the different policies that they implemented, do, how do you think that did at addressing some of these cracks in our foundation, addressing kind of how people get care if it's affordable? So the one place that did actually do a good job was, um, interestingly enough, with Medicaid. Now, that actually was not explicitly the CARE Act. It was just uh, CARES Act, excuse me. It was a choice that they were able to make administratively at the, at the executive level. Um, so one thing that they did with Medicaid during the pandemic was um, they did not allow people effectively to be kicked off Medicaid. So if you were on Medicaid, you just got to stay on Medicaid. And that was hugely important. So sometimes people get kicked off Medicaid because they're no longer eligible for it. But large fractions of people get kicked off Medicaid even though they're still eligible. So in some, st some states, for example, um, there's evidence in Michigan that about 50% of people who um, get kicked off Medicaid, say in a given three month period, are back on the program in a month. And what's happened is effectively, there's been an administrative mistake. You didn't fill out a form, you forgot to provide documentation of something. Um, so there's uh, kind of this huge problem with the system in the sense that people keep effectively lose access to Medicaid, lose access to their care because they just make a paperwork mistake. Um, and the CARES Act really, or, or I'm sorry, the, during the pandemic when they relaxed kind of how they navigated those uh, aspects to program re-enrollment, um, it had a huge impact. Uh, millions and millions of people were kept on and retained access to healthcare in the middle of a pandemic, which is a huge. pretty big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one success story. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I can point to many others, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, 
I, th- I think the, you know, the other thing that people would argue, and I think that this is right, you know, having, um, m- ensuring that access to the vaccines was free, to COVID tests for a while at least were free, were, were really important and, and definitely really helped. The, the problem was, though, that the way that it was administered really reduced the effectiveness. So, for example, if you go on to make a vaccine appointment at CVS, which is, you know, pharmacies are where most people can get them. Um, it looks like you have to have health insurance. So you have to put in your health insurance card. So there's some evidence basically that people think they have to pay for it and that's why they're not getting it. Um, so, wow. yeah. Mixed, that is, that's like, bag. why would we include that then if it's trying to steer people away? Oh, I didn't yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 um, the, it's basically because of how they administered it, basically because pharmacies can still charge health insurance companies for it. But there, there's basically an administrative path that kind of explains why they do it. And yeah. it all makes sense, except for people on the ga- ground actually trying to access the vaccine. <laughs> mm-hmm. So just more generally speaking, what program do you think has done best in the US? I think I have an idea of what you're going to say, but like policy in general that has been the least administratively burdensome and can be used for other, should be used as an example for other types of policies we wanna start up. So yeah, the social security program, especially the retirement part of the program. I mean, you know, I think it's important to point out, it's not just that it is um, the easiest uh, program to navigate, it's also our most um, success, successful poverty reduction program that we've ever had and that we still have. Um, so it provides an enormous amount of economic security for older adults. It's about 40% of older people's income on average. Um, and it substantially reduced poverty over the period that it was implemented and then especially expanded in the 1960s or 70s. So whereas you know, 40% of older adults used to live below the poverty line. It's, it's about 10% now or below 10% or hovers around there. And it's, you know, it's interesting that the reason I like to talk about it is because I actually think it's a good example of where people say, oh, well, it's a universal program and that's why there's low burden. And I think that's really inaccurate. If you look at the, um, if you look at the history of the program, if you look at how the administrative capacity of the program was developed. And if you really look at actually the benefit design, it's not actually easy. <laughs> There's nothing easy about it. You have to keep track of people's earnings for their entire lifetimes. Like that's not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a version of this system that we might've developed where we required you to keep track of your earnings, right? We do this for other programs. If you walk into a SNAP office in most for food stamps in most places, you have to bring in evidence of your earnings. Um, you don't have to do that for social security because they keep track of it for you. Um, And during the period where they developed the administrative system for it in the 1930s, I mean, it was a huge, intensive effort. um, And it, you know, it wasn't easy to do. Um, But because effectively the kind of burden of both keeping track of people's earnings and then figuring out which benefits you're eligible for and how much and all of that, because Social Security handles that and has an effective administrative capacity to manage it, the burden then is on the state and not on you, right, the individual. Um, and it's 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 huge. I, I had a colleague actually who was, um, who had recently retired and he, he had read our book and sort of said to me, you know, 
um, I, he, 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 that part in particular really stood out to him because he, you know, he said, I'm, I'm still a year into it, pr- trying to navigate my uh, private pension plan, basically his uh, Tiacruf, he's a, mm-hmm. an academic. Yeah. Um, and that's not actually a, a particularly complicated private plan, but compared to a social security, it's kind of a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so definitely social security is the model uh-huh. for it. Yeah. I mean, it's been super successful and been around. it's one of those benefits. No one wants to get taken away. So nope. it's working. Yeah. I know you mentioned that it was the most effective at um, reducing poverty of any program. Um, I guess looking forward, what do you think is a policy area that's really going to become important in the future for addressing poverty specifically? Like if there's any, whether it's like environmental justice or healthcare or um, new social policy, like a huge social safety net policy, like which do you think is going to grow in popularity possibly politically or in general, just the need is going to become so huge that politicians are going to have to do something about it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two areas. I mean, we've seen the sort of gradual expansion of um, government subsidized healthcare, you know, whether it's via exchanges where you just get money to buy a private plan yourself or Medicaid, the expansion of Medicaid. Um, I I do think we're going to continue to see a push towards expanding um, and ensuring access to healthcare. It's not going to look like it does in Canada or in the UK. Um, and it's messy and it's not ideal, but I think, I think you're going to continue to see that. And that actually has huge economic ramifications for people, right? Mm-hmm. One of the most common sources of debt, aside from student loan debt, is medical debt, right? Um, uh, and it really does. Medical debt in particular really uh, pushes people off a cliff, Um So, and we know this from experiments, basically, that access to Medicaid improves people's income security too, actually. So I think that is one area. I think the second big area is um, the child tax credit. I'm not sure what's gonna happen to it. Um, I I think there's the way that they chose to implement it um, actually reduced, I think, the probability that it would actually be really popular. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's really tricky to distribute a benefit through the tax system. but it's profoundly important for low-income families. Um, and, uh, you know, has clearly substantially reduced poverty among low-income families. I don't think we're sure to the extent yet, but the largest reduction, I think, in child poverty in decades um, is associated with the child tax credit. You know, the main issue you asked about popularity, the main issue with child tax credit, right, is that it is administered through the IRS. Um, and so we don't, you know, the IRS is an enforcement agency. It's not, it's not, it's not, it wasn't designed to deliver social welfare benefits. So I worry a lot about people's interactions with the IRS um, and how that affects people's uh, views of the program and its popularity. I mean, one of the reasons social security is so popular is, is sure in part because it's a lot of money. <laughs> And it provides a lot of economic security for people, but it's just so easy to navigate, right? People have very positive views of Social Security and the Social Security Administration. Um, you know, it's, they don't view it as an enforcement agency. It's like the agency that gives you these lovely checks and they're easy to get and I don't have to argue with anyone and I'm not fearful when I call them in the way that you're 
just have all this sort of baggage with the IRS. So that's the one kind of check I'd put on it. Um, I do think that's a risk in terms of undermining its popularity. Yeah. In regards to child tax credit, what are your thoughts on the earned income tax credit? Because that's kind of similar where it's been shown to be hugely impactful for a lot of low-income families. Um, And it was something that was brought back into the conversation more. I think when the pandemic hit, it became hugely important even more than it had been. So I guess, what are your thoughts on that policy? Yeah, no, the the earned income tax credit has become, I think, a really, it is a very, very effective program. Um, It's substantially reduced uh, child poverty. It, um, there's like um, estimates now of kind of long-term impacts on like positive educational outcomes and health outcomes for children. Um, So hugely beneficial and important program. Um, and they, and it's just been gradually expanded over the years. So it sort of defies this mantra of um, means-tested programs are always going to be miserly, right? Um, and and will always just be, you know, diminishing them. The ITC is the opposite. You know, it's continued to expand. Um, the main problems with it are effectively that it's administered through the tax system. <laughs> I mean, there are, there are some benefits to that too. But, you know, still about 20% of people eligible for the benefit don't get it. Um, And even some really lovely things they did during the pandemic, I don't think actually people understood or benefited from. So, for example, right, um, the way the EITC works is the up to a point, at least, the more that you earn, the more that you earn, the higher your benefit. Um, But obviously, people took a real hit. um, uh, In 20 early 2020, in terms of their earnings, right? Um, and in 2021 too, especially low-income populations, right? Like they're working in jobs that were hit hardest by the pandemic. So one of the things that they did is they actually allowed people to base their EITC benefit based on either their 2019 or their 2020 earnings. Uh A hugely potential, huge potential benefit. I don't think that a lot of people understood that. And even if you go on the IRS website and you they have a calculator to help you figure out what you should put on your tax form, it doesn't tell you that you can put in either year. Um, so if you did it through, if you did, if you used um, like HR Block to do it, they would know and you'd get it, but not everyone does. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so again, I think, there are just administrative issues that really undermine the potential effectiveness of the program. Yeah. I think it becomes, once you start thinking about it, it pretty much exists in any type of policy you think about, because I mean, it's just, it's crazy that it's all about messaging as well. And like how you portray a program and especially with the taxes, I mean, people already don't like the IRS. It's, it's, it'll be hard to change that perspective for a lot of people, I feel like. And so it is interesting, this shift in responsibility almost to the IRS to carry these programs out when they were never designed to do that. So Exactly. Yeah. No, there are. I mean, it's really interesting, though, because there are potential reforms that could actually really improve this. So I mean, one version, right, Mitt Romney actually proposed a version of the child tax credit that would have administered it through the social security system. So that's one version. I I would have liked that version, but it doesn't have to be that either. So Australia, for example, also 
delivers a lot of social welfare benefits through their tech system. And what they've actually done is sort of design an entirely separate uh, unit within their tax system that only nav- that only manages the social welfare benefits. So they've created sort of this other entity within this organization um, that functions differently, basically, in practice. Um, and I think has reduced kind of some of those negative ramifications of distributing benefits through the tax system. So I think we actually have a range of, of ways administratively that we could um, that we could fix this actually. So I don't think it's a, it's like a sort of hopeless thing. And there are advantages. I mean, so one of the reasons why people argue the AITC, for example, has been successful um, and not unpopular and not stigmatizing, there's no evidence that EITC is stigmatizing, is both because it's linked to work and then also the argument is, well, you know, it is sort of hit, hit, hidden a little bit within the tax system. You know, so there's there's upsides and downsides to that. The risk with it being hidden within the tax system is that people just don't understand it's a benefit, right? And then uh, the, the sort of uh, submerged state, as Suzanne Mettler refers to it as, um, and people don't understand sometimes how much government actually is doing for them. That's not a good thing either. But anyway, there's ways in, on the administrative side to, to improve how the IRS administers this, uh, these programs, I think, um, that could have a big impact. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, there could be so many avenues to talk about this issue. Um, I guess just to kind of uh, wrap up about, I'm curious, how did you get into this study of administrative burdens? Like what, was there a program that you were looking into that highlighted it a lot or what, how exactly did that occur? Sort of two, uh, there's sort of two things I'd say about this. So the first thing is I've done social welfare policy, especially um, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, stuff like that, my whole career. Um, so it's not like I was very aware that these were issues, basically. Um, so, so, so that's part of it. Uh, but part of it actually was just personally, um, uh, in two different ways, um, my the, my partner for a lot of this work, Don Moynihan, is also my spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's always done, we we didn't have overlapping interests at all, actually. Um, he always did the sort of bureaucratic administration side. And, I, you know, I don't remember, it was a conference or something, and we kind of got to talking about it um, and just thought it would be kind of a fun area for us to kind of collaborate, um, in part because uh, people who, in public administration at least, um, people weren't really paying attention to this. Like they focused a lot on kind of red tape or people's interactions with um, people's interactions in bureaucracies. Like if you work in a bureaucracy, like all the red tape, like they thought about it that way, but they didn't really think about it so much in terms of the interaction between uh, bureaucrats and citizens. Um, so anyway, that sort of started some of it, but then I, I think it was also just some personal experiences. My older, my oldest daughter has a disability and, um, soon after she was diagnosed, um, Medicaid actually provides supplemental coverage for kids with disabilities in a lot of states informally referred to as the Katie Beckett program, because private insurance just doesn't cover a lot of things. Um, and so I, I knew she'd be eligible for it because I, I know a lot about social welfare policy, right? So I knew, I knew she was yeah. eligible. Um, and I called up, to, um, I found the number, I called up, I talked to the woman about it. 
And she basically said, well, you can apply, but she's probably not eligible. I knew she was wrong. So I had her send the paperwork. But as soon as she said it, I knew like what a nightmare it was going to be to actually navigate it, right? Like it was so clear to me, you know, you get this huge packet of forms. Someone's already conveyed to me that they're going to be difficult about it, right? And so I just didn't do it. Like, I just was like, I just can't manage this right now. And it was just a real lesson for me about even at an intellectual level, right? Like, I I understood that these were problems and it affected people's ability to navigate a program. Um, But it really hit hit for me, I think, especially like the psychological element of it and how that affects people's ability to access programs they really need. And it was just striking to me. I was in a better position than many people, right? Like, um, and I still couldn't manage it. (laughs) And that was kind of eye-opening, I think, in a way. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, that definitely um, makes sense. It's one of, it's almost like a hidden thing that no one really knows about. So, yeah it's, it's existent though. So it's definitely topic of conversation that I'm so glad you were able to come in and talk to us today because well, thanks for so having interesting. me. Yeah. yeah um, thanks for having me, Kara. I really appreciate it. And I hope we can have you again. I mean, you know, a lot about the social welfare state, which is super interesting as well and super relevant since we have not had some big social policy in a long time. I mean, before the pandemic, at least. So yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you for listening, GPPR listeners, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode with Professor Pamela Hurd. If you are interested in more information on administrative burdens, I really encourage you to check out some of her work and even reach out to her. She is a member of the Georgetown community, and I'm sure she would love it. I'm Kira Brown, and I hope you guys come and tune in again when we have our next episode drop. Thanks.